0: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 117, The Guerrilla War of 1401. Owen reached the end of spring with a small force of men who were able to harass the English, but were not able to push forward in any great degree beyond that. The Scots and the French were not prepared to risk anything for a minor noble with little to show other than a few raids and small victories. With that in mind, it must have been obvious to Owen that he would have to fight with what he had. And as spring turns towards summer, there are suggestions that Owen moved towards Camarthenshire, a previous hotbed of rebellion in the years previous. We mentioned, of course, a couple episodes ago that one of the major areas which were problems for Richard II was landing there and, of course, was one of the strongly minded independent locations in the eras of Llewellyn the Great and Llewellyn the Last. So, as Owen moved south, he was met on a few occasions by one of the lords out to chase him, John Charlton. As the English tried to either delay Owen's movements or straight-up fight him, as they accomplished very little either way, it was more or less a game of cat and mouse. Likely, the Welsh forces were able to avoid any major conflicts and continued to withdraw before the English could do very much. Basically, feints, quick dives into certain areas, raiding here and there, and then rushing away, or meeting with allies and rushing away before the English could catch them. A bit like Robin Hood running back and forth into Sherwood Forest would be, I guess, the closest similarity. It's during this period when the so-called Battle of Minnith-Heathiken was said to have taken place. This was recorded a century and a half later by Griffith Hyrthog in the Annals of Onglindur. This distance and really a lack of any mention of the battle by contemporaries may have put this story on shaky ground already. Certainly at this period, the idea of Owen with just 120 men defending in a desperate pitched battle around a larger English numbers makes a little bit of sense, but the reality of it is is the Welsh forces were said to have been made up of mounted archers on ponies, bred for hills and mountains. The English were made up of English and Flemish soldiers who were said to be making up these various troops of infantry and cavalry, while there's little mention of archers on the English side, which would be a little confusing, I would guess. But, and in this stage of medieval warfare, you're going to have archers. That's just the way it worked. The English, though, a larger force, claimed to have been as high as 1,500 troops in the report, were facing better prepared and experienced foes who, so the story is told, were able to outwit and defeat all of these massive amounts of troops, killing 200 of these enemies before they themselves would flee the field. In the story, the idea is, is that they have surrounded the Welsh on a one mountain and then try and catch up to them. Two things, of course, make that story unlikely. One, it was said to take place in what amounts to a mountain, but in an open field as well, which, as we've seen to this point, I doubt Owen would have been caught out this way. He seems able, all through the rebellion, to avoid being surrounded by enemies in such numbers as described, at least until he's in castles and and fortified positions. That did not happen. And in the story, of course, the English were said to be ten times his size, which that also could be possible, but the reality is, is that if they were that many, certainly Owen would know they were coming and be able to move and escape before they could catch up to him. Also, the idea of any large hill or mountain being surrounded by a thousand men or 1500 men and being able to hold off any sustained force seems ridiculous at best. The reality of it is this story seems very unlikely on many, many different things. And of course, with all of that, we have to look at the fact that they also said that the English side was ill prepared, were a very amateur hour, for lack of a better word, which again, it seems very strange that that would be the case in a medieval era where most of the English forces were as experienced as most of the Welsh forces. Really, what worked to the Welsh benefit, and we'll talk about this in more depth as we go through this section is the weather, the landscape, and their understanding of it, as much as it was their ability as warriors. And of course, the other part of this is is the records themselves, say, you know, from English muster calls, supply requisitions, payments, or chronicles, say nothing about this army. There's no record that this army ever existed or was able to do this. And with little evidence, it feels more like a yarn told around a campfire. Our Owen was so great, he could whip the English single-handed, tweak the nose of Henry IV himself, and be off without even a notion. And the reality is, if the story's too good to be true, and too unlikely, in these circumstances especially, they probably were. Even if the battle did not happen, there were some grains of truth in it. Owen was moving south, collecting forces as he went, but likely remained in a humble group, moving with swiftness and filled with troops who had been battle-hardened over years of campaigning along with some of those who were looking for glory, or even simply ruffians and robbers who were looking for a quick buck. They were very likely pursued by a mobile force of English cavalry, whose primary job was to confront the Welsh and keep the main force of Henry IV informed on well. the in effect where the Welsh were. However, even if they were tasked to do so, they must have found it very difficult through the summer and the spring, as we received few actual confrontations, and it seemed more like Glendower and Company were able to carry on with a war of attrition against the enemy, with little that the English could do to stop them. As Adam of Usk, our chronicler that we have of the time period and will be, of course, referring back to quite frequently, he puts it very succinctly to quote him all this summer of 1401. Owen Glendower and several of the Welsh chieftains whom the king regarded as traitors and outlaws from his kingdom severely devastated West Wales and North Wales, taking refuge in the mountains or woodlands before emerging either to pillage or slaughter those who had tried to attack or ambush them. Even as these tactics terrorized the countryside, scared the English in general, and motivated Henry to begin considering the threat serious enough to take action, things were about to get worse for the English. At Welshpool, across the border of mid-Wales, fighting broke out in an area controlled by the English commander who'd been harassing Glyndwr. Charlton. He raced back to try and intercede, and the castle survived the assault, but the town was looted. Other castles do not fare as well, and many seem to go out of use at this time, likely because they were either indefensible or in such state of disrepair after the attacks that the cost of rebuilding would have been too difficult to manage, especially if they were being harried by Welsh troops and Welsh ruffians, for lack of a better word, who may have been attacking occasionally, even at this point. So you can see that the English would abandon fortifications that just were untenable. As mentioned previously... Some of these attacks happened naturally out of frustration and seeing other Welsh people rising up across the various boundaries and without centralized forces, it made it very difficult to put them down. There was no head that you could easily attack. Glindor was the closest you got at this point or possibly the Tudors. But as Glindor's successes at this point were putting enough fame on his head People were starting to flock to his banners, and the English were no longer playing whack-a-mole. They were determined and dedicated to taking out Glendur, who now was becoming the object of and the actual center point of the rebellion. Owen, meanwhile, had taken a castle at New Radnor, just 40 miles from Welshpool. According to one rather gruesome tale, he took the survivors of the castle siege, obviously the English or Welsh could be either, uh, and ritually decapitated them, which I assume just means he executed them um, for such resistance. Basically, in other words, you know, if you're gonna, I suspect this probably speaks to the fact that they were likely Welshmen, uh, because why would you do that to the English? You don't need to terrorize the English. They're already, ter- you know, they're already full of terror. So either these were loyalists who were Welsh, or they were people who were associated with Glyndur who had betrayed him. So it makes sense to send a message effectively against them, which to me, that's what this speaks more likely to. It's hard to say for sure, of course, because all we have are, you know, small mentions rather than major things. So in some cases, we're reliant on those. And so we don't know fully what's going on. Other Welsh rebels had put Harlech under siege, but not under the command of Owen at the time. In fact, at no point is he seen appearing at the siege and... It was a siege that went on for months, so much so that Prince Henry wrote his father asking for help as the rebellion in South Wales also was kicking off to the point where it had convinced people to stop paying money for crown lands that they were owing the crown. This went on to the extent where it would become painful to the king's purse. There was a general sense of ill will which was growing even by those who could not fight or would not fight. The king himself sent 500 men to try and relieve Harlech, and eventually they did do that. So why had the English done so little to try and stop the growing revolt? One so obviously spiraling out of control as days went on. Part of that was financial. The parliament was not particularly favorable to Henry, and during the early part of the war, kept his finances limited. And in fact, the parliament worked to gain more and more control against him.
1: Just two brands having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first, due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Much very similar, actually, to what happened to Henry III and uh, Edward before he became king where in the parliament and the lords were effectively controlling the purse and making henry have to pay for every inch of you know taking on this war this would be a thing for at least the first five years of the war and in reality it it comes out of the fact that i don't think there was a lot of loyalty for henry the fourth or henry bolingbroke i think there was quite a number of lords who if they didn't despise him outright, certainly didn't have a lot of love for him. And so I think that also affected their opinions. And and as per always with the Welsh lords in the parliament, they were always looking to make, you know, the king fall to their will and the king conversely trying to force them to do his bidding. And in fact, as the parliament did this, it then created all these problems for Henry. The Welsh resistance to paying dues, on the king's land must have also put pressure on Henry to try and act before it got out of control any farther. On August 30th, 1401, Prince Henry ordered the advance of the English forces into Wales. Henry IV had spent a great deal of time gathering funds and men, raiding his own castles for weapons and guards for the soldiers. While an earlier attempt in May to enforce his will went nowhere due to his financial struggles, the king now had enough financing material, and men to actually launch a campaign and try to catch the rebels. In October 1401, Henry and his army moved from Worcester to Brecon in South Wales. Henry, trying to get control of the situation, was met with infrastructure issues. Wales of the 15th century had actually few roads. Most of them were the millennia-old Roman roads that had been few and far from adequate. And of course, with a thousand years of use had probably been in rather large disrepair. So you don't have an easy way to transition across some parts of Wales. And, you know, he's moving a large army into a territory that was still wooded. And because ranching and farming wasn't the mainstay for a lot of Welsh at the time, there was little sort of open acreage to walk on. Then they, of course, had to pass through mountains, hills, and bogs. And, of course, these forests that all blocked their way, hemmed them up, made their life miserable. And, of course, Wales in October was then, as now, a rainy place. The sun, of course, is going down earlier. And so the daylight hours are much less than initial traditional campaign periods which would leave the men cold wet and in the dark a lot of the time and certainly you can imagine that when it got dark you don't want to be trouncing through hills bogs cliff faces and all those fun things that would come about and of course the fact that the welsh would probably run a lot of their ambushes during that time all of a sudden now your ability to move is restricted it's limited to the daylight hours and on top of everything else, you're miserable when you're camping because that night is so bloody long. So yes, it's not December, but still you're still talking about a time where the sun is going down more like, you know, six o'clock in the evening or earlier. So all of that's, you know, having an effect on the men. And so making matters worse from Brecon, And as they went along trails to Camarthen, trying to take back the southwest specifically, they eventually would make it to the monastery of Strata, Florida, which was an important point for the resistance. And as the army marched, as I said, one of the worst parts about it was, was the continued, consistent absence of Glyndwr and the main Welsh forces. The reality was they weren't engaging the English. Owen didn't want to bring his forces to bear against the king. He must have known how badly it would go and would not give the king a sniff of his whereabouts, allowing the weather, the terrain, and the darkness to do the work to sap the will of the attackers to make the king angry and vengeful and, effectively, make his men tired and probably pretty crotchety as time went on. For a month, as he went through South Wales, the king did his level best to create more traitors, more rebels, and more trouble for himself. At Llandovery, Henry ordered the execution of a local noble, Llewellyn Griffith Fechan. Feichan was considered to be a folk hero in the area. Some call him the Welsh Braveheart. We know very little about his life. We know a little bit about where his family came from and that he has some links to the old uh, monarchy. But beyond that, we don't know much about him. Adam of Usk is one that mentioned that he was wealthy and appeared to be considerably generous to the locals. His association with Glyndur, however, ran him afoul of Henry. According to Usk, Henry had him drawn, hung, eviscerated, beheaded, and quartered before the gates of the Llandovri castle on October 9, 1401. His death would be considered particularly pointed and would show that Henry... Either considered Faichan a leader in the area who needed to be made example of, or possibly that Fechtan was a supporter who crossed over to Owen and Henry found that a personal betrayal. According to Usk, Fechtan willingly preferred death to treachery. This, of course, being treachery to Owen. He was asked to give up the whereabouts of Glendour. Rather than do that, he laid his neck out to the executioner as if to make it easier to be killed. He was loyal to Owen to the last. His sons would be members of Glyndor's army, so the king had lost this family for sure, if he was not already had done so in the past. This would not be the last time that Henry would go so far in gaining revenge, and it would cost him support, both in Wales and in England. This was a well-liked and beloved and local leader, destroyed by a tyrant king in a fit of pique it must have sent the exact wrong message to everyone. The king raged across Wales, killing monks, burning crops, destroying communities. In a way that seems completely modern in thought process, the king was trying to root out the rebels and give them no comfort. By destroying places of refuge, by killing supporters, Henry had decided that no one was safe who supported Glindor. At Strata, Florida, uh, near Aberystwyth, They sacked the old building, stealing the silver, and running a stable out of the building. This would be the height of sacrilege, allowing horses to wander and relieve themselves in a house of God must have outraged the local clergy. But, as a home for the Welsh princes and kings of old, it was considerably a feature in the landscape of West Wales. This was not just an attack on the nobility, on the people, it was an assault on all that they held dear. Henry was in effect, and excuse my word usage here, crapping on Welsh culture and community. He had thrown down the gauntlet, and was not shy in showing that he meant business. The final insult claimed by Usk was that the king rounded up a thousand Welsh children, marching them off to England to work in some form of indentured servitude. If true, or even if it wasn't true, the rumor of this would be, have given the population even more reason to hate the king, to support Owen and to prepare for the battles to come. In effect, one could argue that Henry had basically thrown out the baby with the bathwater. The message from the king to Wales was, Know your place and give up the traitors. This would be met with even more flocking to Owen. Meanwhile, Owen had a message of his own, and at this point, Usk recorded that Owen had chosen his standard, one that could not be anything other than an open challenge to Henry, even while he continued to frustrate the king through secretive means. This may be where we see the first idea that Owen had reached a grander conclusion than simply removing Henry from Wales, or removing him from the throne in favor of another king. It was reported that at this time, Owen raised the banner of a gold dragon on a white field the legendary banner of Uther Pendragon, one of the mythical Arthurian kings of Britain. There is no more clear sense that Owen was setting himself up as a new Arthur figure, a man of legend and a light to shine for the Welsh in their darkest hour. Of course, all the while, the king floundered about, creating enemies and separating himself from his own subjects. Owen raised his new banner in North Wales at the heart of Gwynedd on November of 1401. He led an attack on Carnarvon Castle, which apparently went badly as he lost 300 men in the process. But the message was loud and clear. Owen had gone to the heart of Welsh independence under the trail of the kings of Gwynedd and launched his new symbol of the old kings. Historian Gideon Brow suggests that this was to meet with his cousin the Tudors to gain their support or to show them who the true leader in Wales was. At this point, Henry and his hosts had returned to England empty-handed, money spent, enemies made, and the miserable waste of men and material. English lords and commanders returned to their fortified towns and castles, hunkered down for the winter. Rather than confront the Welsh, they fled the field. Owen had won a victory, one that saw him win few or no battles fight no open contests, but still wear the English down in frustration. It would be a common problem during these years, and it would create fertile ground for further attempts to defeat the English. In late autumn of 1401, Owen reached out to the kings of Ireland. In a letter, Owen pleads for aid from his esteemed kinsmen, as he calls them, against the common enemy, the vile Saxons. He calls on them to send men and arms and cavalry to aid his cause. Of course, once again, as he had done with the Scottish, Owen knows he needs allies, and most important of all, he needs troops. The Irish, like the Scots, had a long tradition of fighting the English, and he even suggests that prophecy said that in order for Wales to win the war, it would need Irish help. Also, not too subtly, Owen points out, that as long as Wales can maintain the war against the English, this will aid Ireland by giving them peace. This plea appears to have either never made it to Irish hands, Usk himself claimed that the messenger was caught and beheaded, and we don't really have any reason to disbelieve him, or it fell on deaf ears and the Irish didn't care about the Welshmen now attempting to woo them, or could not agree amongst themselves what to do about this call. Even Owen himself acknowledged that he didn't know any of these Irish leaders and was just more or less sending out a cry for help in the hopes that they would follow on just because they had common lineage, possibly. With the benefit of hindsight, I'm left to wonder what would have come of the war had the Scots, French, and Irish jumped on board this early, going to the aid of the Welsh. At the point where most of the Welsh resistance was growing and the early stages had set, for even more English setbacks, could they have toppled the English resistance and forced a treaty? This is definitely one point amongst many where the questions could logically be posed. It will come again for this war in the years to come at various points. At the precipice, I'm sure Owen must have loathed going another year fighting from the shadows against the bigger and better funded English campaigns. For now, that would be the reality, but not forever. And with that, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. I do try and respond to anybody reaching out to me. So please put forward ideas, questions, comments, or anything else that you might have. I'd like to thank my Patreons for their support this and every month that they've supported me since I started the Patreon. If you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, and there are a few videos and things that you can watch there. I I have wanted to do more with it, but unfortunately my work schedule has not been allowing me as much free time. But certainly I appreciate anybody who supports the podcast and... Uh, Thank you to everyone that does, and uh, I will make sure to acknowledge you through the next few podcasts. And for that, everyone, I hope you have a great day. Take care. See ya. Bye.
1: This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast,